Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 242. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Wade Rausch. Hey, Kip. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you, and very excited for this entry in an ongoing and new interview series that I've entitled A Pale Blue Launch, which is a reference to Carl Sagan's A Pale Blue Dot, as he once famously referred to Earth And in this interview series, Wade, you and others are being asked for five objects that you would send in a space capsule, potentially to be discovered by future and extraterrestrial life, or maybe even humans in a far-flung future. And my interest in this interview series is really in the creativity that people bring to the table, and stipulations are being imposed to prevent a bit of repetition that people might otherwise have. Leland, our first interviewer, was given the stipulation by me that all of his objects had to be made of or contain glass in some way, and while stipulations won't always be material-based, the one he came up with for you, as you will come up with for someone else at the end of this interview, was that your objects all had to contain or be made of wood in some capacity. And with that said, I don't think any further explanation is necessary on my part. I'd be curious to hear in any order you'd prefer what five objects you've chosen. Okay, well, can I ask you first to like explain a little bit more about the premise? Like, These are things that we want to send into space that in some sense speak to our culture and our history. Like, We're trying to explain ourselves to some potential alien species that finds this thing. Absolutely, and that's perfectly well said. I might borrow that in future episodes. This is very much meant to be almost a postcard from Earth in material objects. Although Leland, of course, included in his five objects an iPhone which would have contained a digital video per his specifications. So he's getting creative, as I think will other interviewees, as I hope will you, in the stipulations, but indeed for the purpose of representing humanity or, depending on your interpretation, the planet we come from, our home, what it was made of, what it was like to live here. Great. Okay. So my first object would probably be a wooden bow and arrow because the bow and arrow has been a tool that we've used since before recorded history. We have no idea who invented the bow and arrow, but it was probably the key innovation that allowed us to exercise ultimate dominion over other animals. And we couldn't have basically gone out and hunted other animals for food. We certainly couldn't have killed off all the other charismatic megafauna without bows and arrows. So I think the first object, just to kind of explain who we are as a species and where we came from and how we conquered the earth, basically, would be a wooden bow and a wooden arrow. So obviously, there are some components in there that aren't just wood. You need some kind of string or hide or something to make a bow and arrow work. And to make an arrow work, ideally, you need some kind of feather material, and that's probably not going to be wood. But still, the core of a bow and arrow is wood. And there's no size limit, I'm assuming, on like the thing you can put into this capsule. Well, that's certainly a possibility in the future, and I'd love this as a first object. Immediately, my mind, as I'm sure will happen in all of these episodes, goes to what alien life might presume after first discovering something like this. Are they going to know that these two objects, a bow and arrow, which I'll count as one for the sake of simplicity, were used to hunt? Might they think they were ceremonial in some way or were used to indicate things, to mark targets, to do various other things that anthropologically might not be immediately clear, but I imagine it probably would be. I also wonder if alien life discovered this on a planet with different gravity or physics behaving in a stronger or 
different way than on Earth. If they would know how we had used the bow and arrow, maybe they'd think they were shorter range weapons or longer range, depending on what their planet looks like. And I also really appreciate that, as you said, this is a tool, not only a weapon, but one that allowed humanity to leap forward. And for as simplistic as it might seem, it's a clear predecessor in my mind to the gun and much of humanity's future weaponry. And so there is, if not a sophistication, a deep importance to the bow and arrow. And I really love it as a first choice. Yeah, I guess you can ask whether it's a good idea to put a weapon into this time capsule, this postcard we're sending alien species, because we're basically declaring right up front, hey, we make weapons, which may not be the most diplomatic kind of overture to make. But if you're not worried about that, if you're just worried about being honest and um, transparent about who we are as a species and where we came from, then you got to include something like a bow and arrow because that points to our long, long, long history as carnivores and as hunters. And, you know, we've sort of outgrown that now, although obviously there's still people who shoot bows and arrows, but they don't use them in war anymore, right? It's a key artifact from our story as a species. And I presume that bows and arrows were used for hunting before they were used for warfare, but I'll bet that those things started around the same time. If you discovered a bow and arrow and you didn't know anything else about the species that made it, you could at least assume gravity was not so strong that an arrow would just fall to the ground immediately. You probably assume that there was an atmosphere that didn't stop the bow and arrow and that supported its flight to some extent. You would assume that there were at least two species and one was okay with killing the other or the individuals of one species were okay with killing the other individuals, because obviously this would be a weapon. Like if it had a sharp point, it would be a weapon. So, you know, you could read a lot of stuff into that. It'd be very illustrative. I absolutely love the wrinkle you add about, do we want to be honest with this space capsule or represent ourselves in a different way? I'm not thrilled with the fact that humanity absolutely has a history colored by and arguably bordered on all sides by war and conflict the way that we are as a species, perhaps not inherently, but violent very often, especially in our history, hopefully decreasingly so with time. And I would hope personally that a space capsule sent to space would be more transparent. But as you make the point, we make weapons here is absolutely an interpretation aliens might make. And heaven only knows what they might take from that. They could see it as a declaration of war. So it's very thought-provoking, and I appreciate that. May I ask what your second object is? Yeah, my second object is an abacus. The classic abacus, which was sort of invented in China thousands of years ago, is made from bamboo. So I think it counts as a wood object. Both the frame and the rods and the beads are all made from bamboo. And an abacus is like an object that I think is interesting because it shows, in contrast to the bow and arrow, we've evolved a little bit as a species, and now we are actually counting things. We care about some early form of business and accounting and keeping accounts, whether it's for commerce and trade or for taxes or for measuring population or just doing simple math. It shows that we've gotten to the point as a species where we need to keep track of quantities. We've gone beyond the point where we can track things on our fingers and through chicken scratches on a wall or a clay tablet, and we actually need to do some calculations. An abacus is obviously like one of the simplest forms of calculator. It's not just for counting, it's for calculating. It's the simplest possible sort of piece of information technology that we could put into a time capsule or a postcard. That's why I like that choice. 
I find that to be genuinely beautiful. And a quick question before I offer some other thoughts. In my head, an abacus has nine beads or 10 beads per row. Oh, I think they're different styles. Most abacuses that I've seen have like two different registers. There's like one register that's longer that has like at least 10 beads. And then there's one that's smaller that has three or four. And you can use those to denote like orders of magnitude, like a cash register, really. So no, I confess I don't know enough about abacuses. I would not be able to actually use one or do any calculations on them, but clearly they got pretty sophisticated. I ask that because I think human beings counting by 10 is largely based on the number of fingers and toes we have, basic mathematics that we deem to be round, even, easy to count. And we can presume that alien life might not have an identical quantitative relationship. I'm sure if they were as advanced as we are, they would count things, they would measure, they would quantify, they would calculate, which I want to come back to as a verb, but they might not be as familiar with multiples of 5 or 10 as we tend to feel very comfortable with. So I'd be really curious to know how immediately they would pick up on the types of abacuses that we have and produce. And I really love your point about calculation because it's a demonstration of a specific type of intelligence in my mind. I wouldn't be surprised if other creatures on this planet can count in a very rudimentary sense, but aren't doing multiplication, division, subtraction, or addition in any real sense and human beings are doing that, as you mentioned, finances and taxes, in a vast way. And what I love about the abacus, similar to the bow and arrow, it can very vividly represent what is to come in the evolution of mathematics and quantification of things in our world. And I so love that. I think we as people tend to get away from the simplicity that is at the root of so many of the things we do. And mathematics have done a great deal to advance our species and also Without mathematics, I don't think there is any way we could produce spacefaring technology that would eventually produce this hypothetical space capsule. So I really love that as an object and appreciate your thinking of it. Thank you. So yeah, my third object would be a musical instrument, like a recorder or some other thing that's made from wood. Obviously, most wind instruments, they're also called wood winds, are made from wood, whether you're talking about an oboe or a clarinet. And I think that would be a good thing to include because it would send the message that we're interested in artistic expression. If you looked at a flute, you would probably figure out pretty fast that this thing is not just like a tube with holes in it, but it has something to do with the flow of air. And well, I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be obvious. Maybe it would take some figuring and some studying, and maybe you'd have to blow air through it before you realize that this thing is a musical instrument. But let's assume that the aliens figured out that it was for creating sound. Then they would also be able to figure out that it was for creating different kinds of sounds. If they didn't have a picture of a human, if they didn't know who they were, they would also be able to infer that we have fingers, that we have a mouth, that we breathe air, that we can create some kind of stream of air. It would just tell you a lot all at once about humans and what kinds of equipment, like anatomical equipment we have. They wouldn't necessarily know that we have voices, but if you sent a flute or a recorder, you would at least know that we express ourselves through music and tone. It wouldn't tell you anything about the kinds of music that we play, but it would at least like prove that we are sort of multimedia creatures. And so I definitely think you'd want to include at least one musical instrument. See, this is one that I don't question, but I have a lot of questions about. I do wonder how much aliens could deduce about our physiology based on a flute. And I don't disagree with you that those conclusions could be drawn. But I also wonder, as humanity has such an interesting relationship with the arts, 
and similar to weaponry or quantification in mathematics, a timeless one. Our relationship to music and rhythms is so important and goes back millennia. I wonder, though, in the same way that a human child might take a while to figure out how a flute truly operates, what an alien's exploration of this object would look like. Would they try to insert it somewhere? Would they see it as an irrigation tool without knowing anything further about it? And also, in that you mentioned air and airflow, which is, of course, how we use it on Earth, would a flute sound different in the potentially different makeup of an alien world? And my last point of curiosity is that while you and I might enjoy music and find a flute or other wooden, potentially non-wooden instruments to be beautiful to listen to, are there life forms out there that perceive sound differently or have a more limited range? Humans can hear between 20 and 20,000 hertz. Would an alien life form find a flute to be irritating or potentially frightening in a way that you and I might laugh at because that's not what we associate with the flute? This is, to me, one of the most interesting objects because human artistry is so vast and so interesting, and I love a flute as a metaphor, or in the case of your other objects, an intellectual seed of what is to come in that field of music. There's so much room for misinterpretation and diplomatic missteps when you get into this whole sort of premise. But I love the idea that, for example, a flute might be perceived as a weapon because the sound it makes is so obnoxious to some alien species. Do you remember the movie Mars Attacks? I do not believe I do, unfortunately. All right. Well, your listeners should go and watch this movie because there's a 50s crooner type tune. These aliens attack the Earth and they start to take over the Earth. And it turns out the only way to defeat them in this movie, which is totally a comedy, what kills the aliens eventually is just like playing this Roy Orbison tune because it makes their brains explode. You can imagine like that flute music would be really grating for some alien and they would interpret it as an assault and they would take offense at us sending them a flute. So that's just like a little aside. We can never really predict how some alien culture is going to interpret our gifts. But in a larger sense, all of the objects that I've mentioned so far, you know, a bow and arrow, an abacus, and a flute, all have a ton of proprioceptive or anatomical information built into them. Like if you didn't know what opposable thumbs were, if you didn't know about hands and fingers, if you didn't have limbs that could manipulate objects, you would have a really hard time understanding any of these objects. A bow and arrow has to be picked up and you have to be able to hold the bow in one hand and the arrow in the other hand. A flute has to be operated with like all 10 fingers. Same with an abacus. You wouldn't be able to operate an abacus without fingers. So hopefully they'd be smart enough to figure out, okay, these people must have digits. They must have like small limbs and digits that they can use to manipulate these things. Maybe that would be useful to them to kind of like reason backwards. Of course, like the whole premise here is that we're not sending like the most obvious thing, which would be just like a video introduction. Hi, I'm a human. Here's how I'm equipped. But if they had to just reason without that benefit, yeah, you might be able to tell something important from all these instruments. You're absolutely right about those connections. And I think my favorite thing about this premise is to see how a picture of a world can be drawn with only five objects. And of course, depending on the complexity or mechanical intricacy of an object, you can paint more. But with the first three, you've already shown a great deal, at least about our species, and as I'm sure the aliens might conclude, that our planet contained this flexible, firm, and often brownish material that you and I call wood. I'd really love to know how they think that was cultivated. Potentially, they think it was mined or created in some other means. Right. That's a really good point. I'm tempted to include 
I have like five things I really want to get out there, but like if I had a sixth thing, it would be just like a tree or a branch or a piece of wood, because obviously all these things are made of this amazing organism without which it would have taken several thousand extra years for us to figure out how to build things and create cities and hunt. We were so lucky that we had these organisms around us that were creating this material that was so strong but so malleable. I guess there are other materials like bone that are equally adaptable to weapons, but they're not as flexible. Wood is like so perfect as a medium because it's flexible, it's relatively light, it's hard and it can be carved and it grows everywhere. And it's almost free to make because basically plants are just pulling carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and making it into wood. We're so lucky to have trees. So hopefully they would be able to kind of reason backwards and figure that, okay, these humans must have, they must be like farming or lumbering or something. They must have some supply of this organic material. Or maybe they would assume that we make it. Maybe they would think, oh, they, they're really smart. They're like bioengineers. They can make this super interesting material. But I'll bet they could also do electron microscopy on the actual wood and tell that it was organic and not constructed. It wasn't like 3D printed or something. We were harvesting it and reusing it. The idea of organic and artificial materials, I wonder, without a branch or a tree, if these aliens might presume, in some very comedic way, that our wooden objects were very fortunately the skeletal remains of tree-like beings that happened to die and leave behind abacus-shaped or bow and arrow-shaped or flute-shaped objects, which you and I will laugh at because we know work was put into them, but I'd be really curious to see what their thought process was. If it turned out that the aliens were like plant-based, <laughs> and it turned out we sent them a box full of like bones of their relatives. I imagine that in our universe, it's not impossible that life evolved in very similar ways on other planets and that trees developed in ways different to Earth. So there is a horrific possibility there. Can we hear about your fourth object? My fourth object would be something more of an art object. So I hope that your readers are familiar with an awesome book called Paddle to the Sea. I don't know that I am. So no, I, are you kidding me? I apologize for the embarrassment. Okay, maybe it's because I grew up in the Midwest. But there's a classic children's book that every kid in Michigan reads because it's a Great Lakes state. And Paddle to the Sea is a children's book about a little Native American boy whose father carves a canoe with a canoeist. It's a beautifully sort of painted miniature canoe, less than a foot long, and it's meant as a toy. And his father gives him this toy, and the boy decides that he wants to put the canoe in the river and see where it goes. And he lives on a river that feeds into Lake Superior. So he lives somewhere like Minnesota or what we call Minnesota or Wisconsin or Ontario. And they live on the shores of Lake Superior. The whole book traces the voyage of this carved canoeist, which is called Paddle to the Sea. It winds up being a great geography lesson because it's set in a period that's like paradoxically a period where there would still be native tribes making wood objects and hanging out in tribal villages along Lake Superior. But at the same time, it does seem like there's industry and shipping and ore and locks and bridges. The whole St. Lawrence Seaway is like there. So it's weird. But the book is about the voyage of this little canoe. Once it's set in the river, it goes down to Lake Superior and it kind of drifts with the currents and it goes down into Lake Huron and eventually makes its way through 
the Detroit River into Lake Erie, and then Lake Ontario goes over Niagara Falls, makes its way into the St. Lawrence Seaway, and ultimately winds up in the Atlantic Ocean. So it's a great geography lesson, but it's also kind of an adventure because this character is not alive, but you see the canoeist kind of having to repeatedly deal with all of these obstacles. There are times in the book where Paddle to the Sea gets picked up by like an animal, like a seagull or something, and taken off the lake and like taken back to a nest or something. I'm making this part up, but there's something about how he almost winds up getting landlocked again. And I like this story because the canoe is made of wood. It's sort of an art object. It shows that we would carve things, that we do carve and decorate wood objects. And it also has a whole story embedded in it, which the story wouldn't be obvious to the aliens, but it means something to us. So if you were like taking a ceremonial object or a historical object, if there actually had been like a paddle to the sea, now in the Smithsonian or something, but failing that, let's just send a replica because the book is very clear. It has like multiple illustrations. So let's just send something like that. Let's make one and send it. What I really love about that then, presuming my understanding is correct, is that it shows a degree of investment in human imagination. There are various objects, if you were to scan our current human Earth in 2018 or 19, when you're probably listening to this, that would indicate a love of the world of Harry Potter, which is entirely fictitious. And yet so many of us have invested very heavily into the mythos, the ideas, the characters in Harry Potter that were an alien to visit. They would say, this is entirely fictitious. This boy and his world do not exist as you've depicted them. And so I love that an art object, a ceremonial paddle to the sea, would represent, at least in our interpretation sending it, the human love of storytelling, what stories can reveal about our geography, our principles, our difficulties, our fears about our world. And I really wonder if an alien would interpret in any of the objects that we've sent so far, according to your specifications, a ceremonial purpose. I really think, depending on the advancement and the culture of an alien species, or maybe multiple alien species that discover this hypothetical capsule, if they would intuit a meaning or a message that we didn't intend to send, and if they would presume that a bow and arrow were more symbolic than an actual object for use. And so I think a ceremonial paddle to the sea would be really intriguing to send, and I'd be curious to know how aliens might use it. I could see them potentially seeing it as gigantic silverware. And I think inherent in this interview series might be a lot of opportunities for unintended comedy, where aliens presume something that human beings think is so clear. And that's a principle I hope listeners will take away, that in our world we look around and see objects we think are so obvious and evident in their use or purpose. But even in human life, dealing with other people, there's a great deal that has to be clarified, explained. I think our communication can always be honed, and I know this practice doesn't allow us to tell the aliens, but I always appreciate the participation of yourself and others in this thought experiment. The other reason I like this choice is that if you studied it and you intuited or figured out that it was actually sort of a scale model of a real thing, you would then understand that humans make boats and that we can float on water and that we can fit into the boats and we can kind of provide our own propulsion with paddles. They might assume that that's still the way we travel, or they might assume it's a historical example, but it shows a little bit about our environment because it implies that there is something to float on, liquid water. It implies that we have some way of propelling ourselves through the water, and it even shows like the torso and above of an actual human. So there'll be a lot of information encoded in that. I really love that. 
and your final object for this series. Okay, relating to scale models, my final object would be a wooden toy train set. So like a 19th century locomotive, a tender car, a few passenger cars or coal cars or something, and then a caboose. Partly because I was a model railroader as a kid and just loved trains. Partly because toy trains, especially semi-primitive wooden toy trains, have become sort of an iconic children's toy that in a way even make their way into sort of like Christmas decorations and the iconography around Christmas. But mainly because a toy train would be, again, it would encode information at several different levels. It clearly would not be a functional thing. So they would have to figure out, okay, what is this? Is it just a model? It's not really detailed enough to be a model of a working thing. So it must be for something else. Maybe it's just an art object, or maybe it was made for kids to play with. That would lead them to the idea that we have children who need to be brought into the world and trained about what's out in the world. It might take more intuition than they could be expected to have. If you were really smart about it, you would figure out, hey, this is actually probably a model of a real thing that they have in their world, but they made it for their kids to play with, and it's a way of teaching kids about real-world objects. Okay, so what are those real-world objects? This thing looks like a vehicle. It's got wheels. It's got like a more complicated engine at the front. They wouldn't know what it was or how it worked. But if they looked at the cylindrical steam tank, they might figure out that it's powered by some kind of pressure. And if they were good enough engineers, they probably would be able to figure out that at some point we had figured out Boyle's Law and we had figured out how to create steam engines and that we had even figured out how to put a steam engine on wheels and make it the power train for a train. And so it would tell a lot about both the cultural children and it would tell a lot about our early industrial history. This might be my favorite object, and I'm really glad that you saved it for last because in all of these, the aliens are, to an earlier point you made, getting a sense, I hope, of human physiology. And in the size of these model trains, they would learn something about children. And I also suspect about how children play, because you and I as adults might look at model trains and say, there's only so much to do with them. I think as adults, we're cultured out of a play mentality in many ways that I hope aliens would appreciate and smile at, depending on their physiology. And I also really love the idea of a model, something that could in a small way, this capsule doesn't sound like it would have to be very large, could indicate something about our world and about industry and technology that you said. And I'm also really fascinated because, to me, this speaks about the furthest human advancement, technologically speaking, because of what the train is, what it does. And it's still in operation today, although perhaps seen as less innovative than it was a hundred years ago. And I love, like you said, all that it would reveal about our knowledge of physics and machinery, how far we came as a species, and I think it's absolutely beautiful, as is true of all of your other objects. And so before we close, my question to you is, which of these five objects do you think leaves the most room for misinterpretation as to its intended function? Oh, good question. I mean, you could point to any of them, I guess, but the, maybe the bow and arrow is a good example because there are very similar creations that are actually musical instruments. If you think about it, what's the difference between a bow and arrow and a harp or a guitar? I mean, basically they are a wooden frame holding a taut string. 
and the string becomes the vibrating object that creates a sound. So you could imagine totally misinterpreting a bow and arrow as a musical instrument. And a violin basically is a bow and arrow where we scrape on the strings with an arrow. That could be totally misinterpreted as a musical instrument. Also, you use a primitive bow and arrow to provide really rapid rotation for a stick if you want to start a fire in the classic Boy Scout tradition, right? You make a little mini bow and arrow, and that's the thing you use to make the cylinder rotate fast enough to start a fire. So yeah, there's a lot of different interpretations for that object. I think they might have a hard time figuring it out. And with all of these, as I'm sure I should say at the end of every episode, I so appreciate your creativity and the thought that you put into these. And with the mention of fire, I'm really interested to know if these hypothetical aliens would ever use these objects that we sent, all of which are very important and symbolic, as material for burning, or if they might in some accidental or intentional way use them to start a fire, something they might be familiar with on their planet, depending on its chemical makeup. You're getting into an interesting area here where almost everything, I mean, the premise of your pale blue launch idea is that everything is material in some way. So all the materials we send could be subject to different kinds of transformations or chemical treatments. And a wooden object obviously would be flammable in certain kinds of environments. If there's any oxidizer, like actual oxygen, then yeah, my toy train and my toy canoe and my bow and arrow are going to be subject to being burned. If they were curious about that, they could like take a flake of wood and see how it reacted to oxygen and heat. And related to not space, but events going on here on our planet, as you'd mentioned earlier, yours is a love of and an investigation of technology and the sciences, and in many cases, our future. And so before we go, if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners a little bit about your podcast, Soonish, which I highly recommend they check out if they have not already. Thanks, Kip. And this is my second time on the show, so thanks for giving me another chance to talk about it. It's a very personal show. It brings in my love of history of technology, but also my love of thinking about the future. So the title is meant to suggest that it's a show about the future. And in each episode, I pick a technology that is probably going to help define the future. And I tell stories about those technologies that are meant to help us understand how much control and input and um, influence we really have as average consumers and average citizens in how the future evolves and what technologies actually get adopted. I feel like a lot of folks feel like technology is just a thing that's rushing at them and they have basically no choice about what technologies get presented to them and what technologies become important in the future. And I feel just the opposite. I feel like most technologies only arrive in the world through human innovation and only get adopted if people feel like they're useful or important or profitable in some way. And at every single point, there's just a chain of human decisions about what happens. So in the podcast, I try to pick stories that unpack that and show people how it actually works in order to give them a better sense of agency. And I can attest as a listener, not only that you excel in that, but as so many of us look at the future with really strong emotions, be it optimism or deep pessimism and cynicism, I think you do a great job in evidence and science at tilting us a bit more towards the happy side, towards how we optimistically, to your point, can use technology and shape the future it helps us create. And currently in its third season, I encourage listeners to check it out. I will include a link in the show notes to this episode, 
and Wade, before I let you go, as I gave Leland glass and Leland gave you wood, what are you deciding to make our next listener consider in their five objects? Thanks. I think that in light of the current limitations on the space business and how expensive it really is to launch things into space, you know, I'm assuming that you're proposing that this postcard to space actually be launched sometime soon, like in our lifetimes. And uh, the problem right now that we have getting things to space is that it's just so darn expensive to put things in space. It costs still hundreds to thousands of dollars per kilogram, if not more, to send things into space. So the real premium, that first priority when you're thinking about launching something is how much does it weigh? What's the mass of this thing? So my challenge to the next guest would be to think about the smallest or lightest or lowest mass things. How much meaning can you squeeze into the smallest amount of mass and volume and and weight? I think that's really wonderful. And I appreciate you sharing that as well as you making the time to come on today. So thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between, These were five of Wade's objects that he would choose to be made of wood, and I'd really love to know what other listeners might think, or if any of these objects really provoke thoughts for you. So if you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show as well as supporting us on Patreon, where in exchange for your support, you'll receive exclusive perks like bonus episodes or pre-show recordings. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.